Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. And we are recording. Hey, thanks. Um, I get to do the honors this week uh, for reasons that will become pretty apparent uh, in a moment. Uh, but welcome to the podcast. See, now we're queuing the traffic to roll by out in front of my house. But, you know, spring is here now, so the windows are all open, so we get to hear all that, too. So, uh, so I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. The guy who started the uh, recording is Bill Sutton, who's the managing editor. Hey, Bill. Hey, Joe. And so with us today, I'm going to let them introduce themselves, but I'll tell you just real briefly about what we're going to talk about. And the reason I'm hosting is that the normal host, uh, Annette Hinkle, is uh, one of the key guests we have today because she was recently named the New York Press Association Writer of the Year. Congratulations, congratulations, Annette. Very well deserved. But thank you. It uh, brought us to the point where we had to note that we also have hi, hi Annette. Say hello. Hi, I'm sitting in a parking lot, um, so it's actually a good thing you're hosting because I can't see enough of the Zoom call to even know who's on today. So thank you. I'm the arts and living editor, by the way, in case nobody knows that. Let's tell you who all is here. Brendan O'Reilly is here. Brendan, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Brendan. I'm the deputy managing editor. In addition to Annette, we're lucky enough to have Michelle Traring, who is one of our staff writers and a former New York Press Association Writer of the Year. Did you win it twice? Yes. I thought you did. Of she did. And so, well, introduce yourself, Michelle. Hi, I'm Michelle Traring, and I am the Features Editor. We also have Stephen Coates, who is a former New York Press Association Writer of the Year. Hi, Steve. Hey, Joe. Where are you going with that gun in your hand? <laughs> Papa going with that axe. <laughs> and we have Kaylin Riley, who is also a staff writer, who is a former sports writer of the year uh, in New York State. Hi, guys. Twice, right? Was it twice? Um, three times. Actually. Three times. Oh three times. Hey. All right, my work is done here. You, you don't need me. <laughs> you know, you keep saying former, but it's not really a former thing. <laughs> It's not like they take it away from you. Not like the Stanley Cup. It's like you need to say the years, like, you know, 2014. They did take me out of the sports section, though, so. That's right. And Kaylin Kaylin is the one who who came up with that great expression, that the hive is buzzing. To describe Bridgehampton basketball. Reason enough for the order. What about autumn is squash season? (laughs) (laughs) so i have to say first of all to people who are listening this is not typical the the writer of the year sports writer of the year these awards are given out at the state level level every year and for the longest time um you know it's hard to win those there are a lot of people applying for those awards and for us to have as many winners on our staff as we do is a pretty amazing thing and i've always said I have more than 30 years as a newspaper editor now, and I've always said that our job is to tell stories 
in the in the you know let people know what's going on in the community but we're also here to tell the stories of the people who live in our community and to do that well i am blessed with the kind of staff that is just loaded with that talent and i want to talk about what goes into writing those kinds of stories so annette let me start mm -hmm. with you you know i think writing feature stories i've always said that i think journalism is a craft and not an art there's, it's yeah, not sure. creative writing exactly, but when we get to feature stories and we're talking about individuals or we're telling stories that have, have a great deal of emotion or, or um, something really entertaining uh, about it, I think there is, a, there, there is an element of creative writing, right? It comes into play. Yeah, I guess um, it's kind of free, it's, it's, it's sort of, I imagine it's similar to like trying to write like a narrative script and Sometimes you'll find that, you know, you might do an interview with someone and then you're trying to figure out how to craft the story and something will come to you. It's like, well, I'm going to just throw that up top and that'll be the lead. And let's see what goes to how it goes. And sometimes those first instincts end up working out and you realize like later in the interview that your subject has hit on something that kind of references your opening, you know, whether and you try to usually try to start out with the with the emotional lead. But uh, but I'm always surprised about how sometimes things come full circle in a very weird accidental way, um, you know, without a lot of forcing. And I think that's the thing. It's almost like you have to kind of go into a zone where you're letting, uh, kind of letting your emotions go as far as you can and bringing in some of the, um, the physical aspects of what they're talking about in a way that is, um, it ends up sort of, it ends up feeling kind of like divine in a way. I don't know. I maybe Michelle and, um, and the others can speak to that. Um, but, um, are you guys, do you guys feel like you're channeling a story when you're writing a story like that? Michelle? Yeah, a, a lot of my longtime sources know that I'm a very visual writer. And so my line of questioning is often very descriptive. I'm asking them in great detail at great lengths to describe for me either what's happening in their present day, where they're sitting, what they're wearing, or if it's something that happened in the past, you know, to the best of your ability, can you describe for me everything that was going on in that moment and using that as a way of storytelling to make people feel like they're there with my sources, because I want to feel like I'm there with my sources. So I think once you step into for lack of a better word, like the character, you know, you can like go along this journey with them. And I think that that's where like that power comes from in storytelling a lot of the times. And I think people would be surprised to learn that often Michelle and most generally Michelle is not in the same room with the people she's interviewing, like most of us. Right. That's going to be Michelle, you live, you live in Colorado and you write three or four stories a week for us. Excellently and you do it remotely, that's got to be a real challenge when you're trying to write feature stories, though, but you, you've overcome it. You're able to do that. To a certain degree. I mean, we have incredibly talented news reporters who are there on the ground who do the work that, you know, I literally cannot do, period. Whether I was, let's face it, on the East End or not, you know, it's just not my forte. So, you know, I like over the years have definitely honed in on, okay, how do I do this exactly? so that I can do it from anywhere. A lot of the times, Annette knows this, the people we're interviewing, we can't talk to them in person anyway. Right. So why does yeah. it matter where I am, you yeah. know? And the reason, and the reason that, that Michelle's saying that is that often, like, especially in the arts section, um, we're talking um, to people who are not yet out here because they might be 
premiering a play in two weeks, but they live in LA or, um, you know, they're traveling. And so it's like the, our section in particular is unusual because it's not about um, necessarily being in the same room. You're often previewing things with people who don't live here and only are, are coming here for a very short time. So you have to have the story written by the time they arrive. So you don't get to see them in person and um, in time to write the story. So. I can attest to that from reading Michelle's stories. Often I'm reading them and I'm like, Michelle, you got on a secret flight and you met this person in person. <laughs> don't lie to us. You must have, because this is too good. I mean, Kaylin, don't, you know, don't blow my secrets, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Steve and Kaylin, you guys have the luxury of actually sitting down with the a lot of the people you talk to. Um, are you paying attention when you do those interviews for visual stuff and picking up little things? I find that I do that more in recent years than I used to. And a big part of what I try to incorporate was more of that in, re in recent years, but it's a real skill because you don't want to like transfer your own biases about what you think the person is experiencing or feeling or betraying with their body language. So it can be kind of tricky, but there's certain writers that I read often. And that's one of the skills I try to pick up from them. Like if you've ever read anything by Taffy Brodess or Ackner, she used to write like these phenomenal celebrity profiles for New York Times Magazine. She was like a master at, at doing that. And I, it, I find it's like really, for me as a reader, I loved reading her stories. So I did, tr I, in recent years, I've tried to incorporate that more like, and it's a skill because you have to listen to what the person's telling you. And you also have to kind of be sort of at the same time, like observing what they might be telling you with their like mannerisms and body language, which can sometimes sort of be different than what they're saying. And it's fascinating, but it can really be a skill to kind of pay attention to both of those things at the same time. Steve, unlike these three, who I think it's fair to say um, all kind of uh, cut their teeth on features from the beginning, they were really feature writers. You, you're more of a news guy, but you are very clearly uh, a wordsmith. You, you choose your words carefully when you write stories and you write feature stories that way too. I wonder if that makes a difference as far as how you approach a feature story. For me, it's just... Or are we, are we, are we wasting time, to, you know, even analyzing this in your, in your mind? I get the feeling you just do it and, and analyzing it isn't, isn't all that well, helpful necessarily. I, I, <laughs> You're here by duress. I should say that you are a witness who is, who is, who is speaking here. Uh, uh, permission to, uh, what do they say in court? Permission <laughs> to treat him as a hostile witness. Right. <laughs> so I, I think of, I think of two things I read an interview with Jerry Garcia many years ago and someone said, well, do you like to write songs? And he said, no, I'd rather change the litter box. And when I, when I'm trying to write songs, the cat has a very clean litter box. And another one I think of is Red Smith, who they asked him if, it, if he enjoyed writing his column. And he said, yeah, it's easy. You just sit down at the typewriter and, you know, slit your wrist or something like that. Open a vein. And, open a vein. Yeah. Right. And, uh, so yeah, for me, so it's all just the same horror, you know, it's like, it's like night fright. I mean, 
doesn't matter. It does. I swear to God, it doesn't matter if I'm writing in advance for a zoning board meeting or if I'm writing, you know, a big feature about, you know, someone who just won the Nobel Prize or whatever. It's all the same. It's just like I, I muscle up some kind of fear to or, or strength to get breakthrough and just write. And then I'm exhausted I, after. I think it's interesting that fear, fear and strength almost came out at the same time. I don't know if you meant to say yeah. that, but so. yeah. Well, it That's is pain. And sometimes I feel like the amount of pain Absolute you pain. feel in writing it is directly proportional to the amount of pride you have in it when it's done, because if it's oh. hard, that usually means it's good and worth doing. Not, I mean, not only. Now, when you say pain, <laughs> you mean the pain of actually the Emotional difficulty you distress. have. In Emotional intellectual uh, just exhausting i mean i and and i i have like a totally different response like i i mean i i had like a collection of stories when when i was a reporter at east camp and star that i had you know that i really liked and then i went back and read them all and they all sucked right you know <laughs> each and every one there wasn't there wasn't a good one and then i find these little throwaways with like wow you know that's a cool little lead where'd that come from because i was like under the gun and it just like you know it worked you know well ain't that the truth yeah that's what i've always found too yeah. i'm sorry no, it's okay for me there's also like a correlation to the amount of procrastination kind yeah. of off these really intense stories or stories that like, I know it's going to be good. I know it's going to be a good story, but the act of forcing myself to sit down and write the darn thing is like painful. Yeah. And I put it off and I put it off and it's directly in relation to, you know, the type of story. It's, it a, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. Especially when you have a good story in front of you. It's a lot. Of pressure. I, I think do, do we do we sometimes rely on that pressure? Do we the 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 endorphins or the energy that it releases that I've got to get this done and I've got to get it done totally. soon, and you know and and putting it off as as Michelle said and then you know I I think that adds an element of you know that that necessity to to get it done does something in in the circuits in in the brain that that just you know. That, that just make make maybe make it make it a better job make it, it a wouldn't get story. done any other way i mean the worst is like i'm working on a couple right. of these stories now where i did the interviews months ago but they're not really needed yet so i mean i go back to them on occasion but it's like i don't you know it's like i feel like i need to write this stuff down or like you know write some of the story at least right after the interview because otherwise it's just it's you know like if you wait a couple weeks even it's like you don't have the same emotion as you do right after you have done an interview, if that makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. So do you guys prefer morning or afternoon writing, nighttime, middle of the night, coffee, cigarettes, any of that? More, I, I've become a morning person and it goes against every fiber of my being. But now that I have kids, I sort of, <laughs> I sort of have to because I'm way too exhausted by the time I finally coerce them all into bed to do anything else. But like if I set my alarm for like 4.45 or 5 and I like, you know, guzzle a cup of coffee, I can usually summon up some sort of life force before they're awake to at least get started. <laughs> so does anybody, like anybody on this team like resort to Ritalin or anything like that to get them focused? <laughs> Just coffee. No, but I'm curious. 
I'm curious, do you guys write away from the keyboard? Like, are you writing in your head at night and it comes to you um, at the most annoying times in the shower and then you're like, boom, there's my lead. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. When you're yeah. least thinking about it, when you're usually right before you go to life. sleep, you got to you right, right before you go to sleep, you get like, the ideal lead and you just, you just hope that you remember it. Four hours that later. Notes yeah. app on your phone so that it doesn't like disappear. <laughs> So, so look, my my writing skill pales in comparison dramatically to everybody no, here, and I, no I would way. never. It's probably no. why I'm an probably why I'm an editor probably why I'm an editor now and, and not a writer. But I remember back when I used to cover the the Southampton Town Board, um, and it was a different it was a different age back then. You know, things were a little different, and um, you know, and I would cover board meetings that would start at. Um, you know, six or seven at night, and they would they would go until you know eleven, and then I would have to go home, and and I had five stories coming out of that meeting, um, you know, do the do the next day, and I I remember I would go home, and I would write one story, and usually the the bigger story, and, and get it done, and then I would go lay down for a half an hour or forty five minutes, and wake back up, and and like the story was there in my head, and I would knock it out. And, and, and I would send that in and then I might, um, I might lay down for another half an hour or 45 minutes and wake up and the next story was done. And I mean, I was thinking about these stories as I was writing the one previous, but it was like working in my head and it, it, took, it took that break, I think, of, of sleeping a little bit and then waking up and, and yeah, and that there were coffee and cigarettes involved back then, this is 20 years ago. And, you know, and then by the time it was time to go into the office, I had those you know, five or six stories done, but I really felt like, you know, as Joe said, they, they were all writing themselves in my head. Um, and, and it took that, that break and that little, and that little nap and that little, you know, turn the synapses off for a minute, um, you know, or half an hour or whatever, and get up and, and, and then it was there again. And, you know, it's, it's just one of those unexplained processes that, you know, that worked for me and probably other would cause other people to, um, open a vein, but, um, you know, it, it worked for me. And it's just, it, it's interesting to me how, how everybody's different and, you know, how everybody works differently and, and all that. But that was, uh, that was what I did. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website. Southampton SagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. So I wonder if this profession will keep us a little bit more mentally sharp as we age than it would the normal person. You know, you always hear about people who retire and then they kind of just go to mush. But I feel like like this job kind of forces you your mind to keep working. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty um, mushy right now. <laughs> yeah, my brain <laughs> is clearly like it takes a toll now. I, my my I'm short circuiting left and right. And Bill, Bill, you do realize that you may be 
eligible for compensation for those years of, of working all night long. Yeah. I'll, I'll, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll put in a request. <laughs> you get a lot of comp time. Well, you know, Steve, Steve Coates was the news editor at the time and, and had to read all that crap, um, you know, the next morning that, that I probably, I, I probably remember now as, you know, as, as eloquent prose of the town board meeting, what probably needed a whole hell of a lot of work because I was writing them at three o'clock in the morning. Um, with coffee and cigarettes. So Steve, Steve, you should probably get some compensation for that too. But people also read them in the paper. So, I mean, they didn't complain, <laughs> did they? You know, I mean, well, they were serviceable. I mean, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You, you know, you, you couldn't write poetry. You had, you were, that's what we used to do. We would cover meetings and, you know, and then hope for a takeout feature story or a takeout news feature out of it. Otherwise people kind of, and it's funny because Sag Harbor, you know, is still, they, they people like to know what happened at the village board meeting and the night before and it's like you don't Absolutely. have a lot of time so it's a meeting story and you know if anything i've just decided that you know i everything's not going to make it you know you know i have a question having heard your discussion about you know the writing at 3 a.m and turning it in and sometimes going back years later and reading something you like uh maybe michelle could take this first so michelle and everybody else um do you ever read a story that you loved at the time everybody else loved but then you find yourself being like your own chief critic and being like god i wish i did that so much differently because i struggle with that a lot even on stories that people told me were great i'll read it just a week later and be like wow this could have been so much better uh, yeah brendan like literally all the time always <laughs> yes um I mean, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. And you go back and you look at something and it's like, why did I choose to lead with that? Or why didn't I ask this question? That would have helped the story so much. Yeah, it happens all the time. Um, but it is like just kind of surprising when you go back and, you know, Bill, like Bill and I, we're at the press of Vanderbilt and Riches and like, I was writing the story. I, I, hired, I hired you for that job, right? <laughs> yes, to be clear. Yes, you did. Bill um, always says that. He always makes a point. Of but I mean, I was 21 years old and like, I'll go back and read some of those stories and I'm like, all right, like, that's not so bad. That's like, you know, it's a bad thing. They were, they were, they were great. I remember, I remember when you, you first came to work, mm -hmm. I, I vividly recall your, your first week. And I don't remember what your first stories were about, Michelle, but I remember I opened up that first one. And when you're working with a new reporter, um, you, you always have a little bit of trepidation. Are they going to, are they going to get it? Is it going to need a lot of rewriting and all that? And I remember opening up that first story. I have no recollection of what it was, but I remember opening up your first story, reading it and, and literally sighing with relief and going, oh my God, she can write. And, and that was so cool. And, and, you know, and you, and you were a great reporter too. I mean, everything that needed to be in the story was, was in the story, but, but I remember that. I, I think I took the rest of the afternoon off because I knew it was going to be an easy week. I remember you making that comment to me. Oh my God. She oh, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, and that was. No, it's true. It's true. Um, I'm intrigued too, that all four of you um, and Brendan and Bill as well, you all have very different styles within the style and I can, I think I could pick out who, I think on a blind test, I can tell you who's writing a story because I've read enough of all of your copy to be able to do that. And you all do have a personal 
Well, now style. you have to say what but, your personal style are. No, no, but see, that's uh-huh. part of what it is, is I don't think I can articulate it because one of the things you all do really well is get out of the way that you, you tell the stories, but you don't call attention to yourselves while you're doing it. I think some feature writers have a tendency to overwrite to try and instill stories with emotion. And you guys as a group all know that the story gives you that emotion or it doesn't. And I think you all have the ability to just sort of boil it down to do that and but you do it in different ways i think as as michelle said i think she writes a lot of visual stuff in her stories i've i've noticed that 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 that's a big part kaylin i think you tend to you really try and get into a person's mind um as they're going through stuff um and 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 then i think you you know i think you guys all just have very different ways of doing what you do but but you do it well so someone, I think someone earlier mentioned about the endorphin rush that, that we get sometimes. And we can talk about the benefits of our feature writing for readers and for the subjects of the stories that we write. But I want to talk about the benefits for you guys who are actually writing the stories. And I was thinking about this. It wasn't a feature story. It was actually a news story. But Brendan O'Reilly, uh, Brendan O. Period Riley. <laughs> It's, you, can't, yeah. Joe, you can't do it's, the inside uh, jokes for the podcast audience. They did not hear the part we I'm didn't sorry, record. I couldn't resist. I know I couldn't resist. I'm sorry. Brendan O'Reilly was in our newsroom this week working on a news story. And he sort of had a eureka moment about something and went, ha, and let it out. And, and there were really only a couple of us in the newsroom. So I think it was involuntary for the most part. And it was a news story rather than a feature story. But, but Brendan, that, that endorphin rush, right? That, that's one of the reasons we do what we do is when you, when you find something and you know it's something important or you know it's something good, it, it, it gives you that endorphin rush. Well, having a breakthrough is a very good feeling. And the more that you're struggling with the story, the better that breakthrough feels. So sometimes when I'm reporting something and I'm being told what the supposed facts are, but they're not sitting right with me, and then I just dig and dig and look and dig and it feels tedious and it feels like it's not going to pay off. And then you find that document or you find that recording or you find that that um oh, what's fact. a great word? That fact. Well I was going to say like a little twist in a law that you know wasn't obvious to you and other people overlooked and it's like now everything makes sense now i wonder what the equivalent of that is for you guys when you're writing feature stories is the the moment where someone says something or boom there's my lead when when you're mid-interview and they say something and you're like thank you for my lead yes that and also um I think as journalists, like the order of your questions is very important. So you kind of like establish this rapport in the beginning, and that can lead to um, a lot of walls coming down and a lot of vulnerability later in the chat. They feel comfortable with you. They trust you. And you want that. You want to foster that. So for me, when someone says something that really catches me off guard, it's it's surprising. Um, the level of vulnerability is like, whoa. I always get this moment where like, 
I have these like little happy fists and I'll like kind of throw them up and like, yes, like, oh, yes. Like, thank you so much for saying that. And then the conversation can kind of continue in that vein. For me, that's like so rewarding when I can feel that person trusting me um, and knowing that it's just a result of, you know, the conversation we're having. It's like, oh, happy fists. Yes. Totally. Totally. <laughs> a lot of the time too, happy someone, like at that. least in my experience, the two, I feel like the two questions that I always ask people that I always ask in every interview and I often get are often like on the surface, the simplest questions are, I usually ask them at some point to tell me a story. Like, I feel like I can tell someone's story best if they tell me a story, because if they're, whatever the subject is, whether it's somebody, it's a feature obituary and it's somebody who died or someone who went through something or someone who has excelled at something and you're trying to get to the part where they tell you about how they got into this in the beginning, you know, you want, you don't want to just say they got into this when they were such and such age because they liked blah, blah, blah. Like you want them to tell you the actual story, the moment of inspiration, the catalyst, the spark, was there a specific person, a specific moment, a specific event that got you, that made this important to you. And then at the end, I always say, is there anything else I haven't asked you or that we should have discussed that I didn't bring up or anything else you would like to share, you would want readers to know as it pertains to this. And a lot of the time, like people have gotten, you've established, as Michelle said, that rapport with them, they feel comfortable with you at the end, if you've done a good job. And then there's a lot of time, there's something they're they're kind of holding on to because maybe they're just wait, they want to know how it's all going to go. I mean, like, I never do, take do you, th- you think people are, are sitting there going, I hope she asks me about this. I hope she asks me about that. Because I always felt that way that absolutely that, that, that final, those, those final few minutes of the interview is, mm-hmm. is like, there's stuff that they want to talk about that you're hoping you, that, that you get to and you got to let them you got to let them get that out. But it's like, I also I, I'm sure you guys do this too, especially when you're writing about something that's really emotionally fraught or it's something that someone's that's that's private and they're making they're taking the leap of faith to tell you about like unless you have some sort of long established relationship with them which you don't often they're really trusting a stranger with their Mm. story and not only are they telling a stranger about it but they're telling a stranger whose job it is to tell everyone so it's like you have to really always keep that in mind obviously your first obligation is to just telling the story truthfully but you have to give it its emotional truth too because like that's everything in a feature story a news story you know it's it's based on facts by and large and it's a little more black and white but if you want to spice it up and make it interesting obviously you've got to get some you know creative writing skills in there but like when it's a feature it is you have to really convey that emotion and do it in the right way. I'm always nervous for people to read my feature stories when they come out because, and, and it was funny, I was listening to, um, I listened to the New York Times Daily podcast all the time. And there was this really, really affecting episode about the um, mental health crisis for Air Force drone pilots. And at the and it was just- Oh, that was so good. Yeah. And at the end, I part of the reason I like listening to the dailies because I like to hear the reporters talk about their process. 
And so at the end, the reporter, I wish I could remember his name so I could give him credit, but he said afterwards that he had contacted this guy and said, did I get it right? And he talked about how nervous he always is. And I was like, oh, good. I'm not the only one who feels nervous. Even these big time New York Times reporters think about that after they do a story. They want to make sure that they got someone's story, not just factually right, but like emotionally right. So how do you feel about interviewing people who they give you the sense that they might be an unreliable narrator? They're telling you their story and either their memory might be faulty or maybe they're trying to spice things up. I think that that's again, you know, again, I will refer back to, cause I'm her biggest fangirl, Taffy Brodesser Ackner. Like she, she has done stories like that where she's had to interview celebrities who like are kind of known for being unreliable narrators. Like that's sort of like their thing. And she's just really masterful at that because sometimes you can just let people show you who they are and then just kind of hand that to people in a way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, I completely agree. Let them tell their own story. Make it clear that they are the ones who are telling their story. Right, right. I actually... I have an example of that that I didn't even it didn't even occur to me when I asked that question, but I interviewed somebody who I really had a lot of reasons to believe he was telling me the truth because he was telling me some embarrassing things about himself. um, And he admitted to fabricating a story for a book that he never published. Mm. And he, you know, he went through all the reasons he fabricated it and why he wishes he never did did that and why it was a big mistake. Um, But he also had like a criminal history. And he had mental health issues. So I was like, well, how do I convey all the parts of this guy's story that I have every reason to believe are true, but I want to be fair to the reader and let them know, here's all the reasons why you might not want to believe this person. And here's all the reasons why you might want to believe him anyway. And so how did you deal with that? I got him to speak with me very truthfully and transparently about um, his mental health issues and the crimes that were related to that um, and how he went about his own personal path of reform and trying to do the right thing and just leaves it up to the reader to decide and it ended up being a very long story to get out the uh, pertinent factual parts of the story and also get out the subject's uh, personal, sometimes embarrassing history. It ended up being a 4,000 word story, Mm. but altogether, I'm very proud of how it came out. That's where secondary sources come in handy sometimes too, because sometimes they can speak about the person in, in, in it, it, you know, illuminates something that the person themselves can illuminate. And that's important too, if even if it's someone who's done something incredible and most people tend to be, modest if if you're writing about them uh, some incredible achievements so that's when it's really helpful to have somebody else be like no let me tell you because this person is probably selling themselves short but what here's what you need to know about them that they're not going to tell you i also found that if somebody's telling me their life story from like what they did in the 80s and 90s if somebody was notable enough at the time 
you could look it up and you could find it. Yeah. So here's this person telling me I, I went from this job to this job to this job. And guess what? It was all covered in like the local paper in New Jersey. And then it was covered in the New York Times in the 90s. And some of these things that um, they seem like they would be hard to track down are actually verifiable with a little bit of research. Right. And there's not always a nefarious intent there. People just forget. Mm -hmm. Sometimes their memories are off and... Exactly. Okay, so Annette, true or false? When you're doing an interview for a feature story, the quality of the interview will dictate the quality of the feature story. Annette, true or false? Yeah, I think I think it's about the honesty. Like I've talked to people where you just feel like they're feeding you the line, and like maybe especially if there's someone who does a lot of interviews, it's like they tell you the story. I'm like, I bet every other story that they've ever been in is going to have the same quote and they usually do um there's also like a weird trust thing like i think people are a little bit standoffish and you kind of have to prove that you know you have to kind of gain their confidence just like when you meet somebody new you can't like you know be their best friend in five minutes it's kind of the same thing when you're doing feature stories is you have to i think i think especially people who don't tell their story a lot um, are very nervous when they know that you're going to be writing something for the paper. And um, so when you can get them to sort of relax and start telling you the, the, the deeper stuff, then you know you're going to have a, a better story. And then there's some people that you can tell, like you can know how long the story is going to be because they won't go there. You'll be like, oh, tell me more about that. Or well, how did you feel when, when that horrible thing happened? And they just sort of clam up and they want to, it's like they try to steer you like down the PR path. And then a lot of times I'll say, okay, 10 minutes, this has been a great interview. Goodbye. And it ends up not being a big story. You know, like I'll shorten stories if I feel like I'm not getting anywhere with people. Does that make sense? Are you guys willing to, to get aggressive with a source in those circumstances? Like, Hey, you're, you're not, you're not telling, you know, I need you, you know, I, I need you. I need more from you. Depends on whether or not they're being, I feel like they're being disingenuous about their reason for not wanting to tell you something. Like if somebody was kind of like hounding you to do a story about them, but then they don't want to talk about certain things, you have to at sometimes be like, hey, this isn't really a story without this aspect. So we've got to find a way to talk about it. Otherwise, it's not going to be a real honest, like you're, you know, their name is in the story, but your name is on it. And so you, you like you have an obligation obviously to your to your subject but to yourself and to your readers so you know it, it kind of goes it has to go both ways along those same lines are you guys willing to get emotional with with a source um and and i i mean there was there was one reporter who who maybe overdid it and and used to you know with with emotional stories would cry a lot on the time on the phone with sources and stuff and took some flack for that but i have to admit i remember once or twice writing stories with with emotional people and and um tearing up a bit myself a, a couple times um <clears throat> where where does the line where's the line between um the the professional and the and the personal and or is there a line and do you allow yourselves to get emotional um, yeah, I'm kind of like the queen of the mute button uh, when I'm when I'm chatting with someone. I mean, I'm a very emotional person, just generally speaking. And so I try not to blur that line too hard. 
Um, but there was one story last year that I wrote for our 9-11 special section. Mm. And it was with um, the sister of one of the passengers on United 93 that went down. And I was having her bring me through the day. Uh, and it was extremely intense. The, the most emotionally intense interview I've ever done in my career. And she's explaining to me the moment that she realized her sister was on that plane and that it had crashed. The moment that she like fell to the ground and she just started bawling on the phone. And I just felt like there's like nothing I can do here right. to help. And so I just cried with her, you know, and I just, and I felt like that did bring us together. And it took me a long time to accept that like, that was okay for me to do. And that was appropriate in that moment. I really struggled with that professionally for a while afterwards. Like, oh, like, you know, I don't know if I should have done that. I think we're, we're, we're humans. I mean, we're, we're, we're reporters and writers and right. all that, but we're human beings first. And, and I think. Yeah, I don't think you have a choice. Right. But I wanted to ask two questions of you guys. Um, one is like, do you pre-write the questions that you're going to ask? Because I find that I don't, because I feel like when I pre-write, um, I'm sort of stuck in this script that, and if they say something interesting, sometimes it's harder to veer off. Or I hate when people say they want to pre-see my questions, which I very rarely do if I don't have to. And secondly, do you record your um, interviews or do you just type as people talk? I do a bit of all those. Um, I, I, yeah, <laughs> same. Um, I pretty much record every interview and transcribe it. I find that it allows me to actually have a conversation with my source and not have to get down every single word. There's exceptions to that, of course, if it's just like a quick thing, but if it's like a feature story, I record pretty much everything. And I do um, a lot of research before I chat with my sources. So I'll have a framework of questions, but I allow myself the flexibility to go off that track. And well, if they say something interesting, I'll jot down that question to follow up and then circle back, that kind of a thing. Sometimes writing down the questions is just a good exercise in preparing yourself, even if you're not referring to that it that much. And it all depends on your subject because some people, you ask an initial question and then it just rolls from there because you have a good rapport, they're talkative, they're open, not the, the conversation just flows. Other people, it can still end up being a good feature story, but you have to do more of the heavy lifting in terms of steering the conversation. And that's when I find that looking back at the questions can help because sometimes you get into this bit of a like dead zone and you have to, when you get, if you get into like a dead zone like that, you have to have the next question ready because otherwise it sort of like you lose all your momentum kind of. So when I've trained young reporters, my advice yeah. was always to be, have a list of questions with you and don't look at them. Um, have the interview, have a conversation. And then Caitlin, like you said, if there's a lag and nobody's coming back, then you can flip back and look at some questions. Or when you think the interview is over, go back and just make sure you hit all the different areas that you wanted to hit. But I think, I think you're right. I think the conversation is the conversation and the story comes out of that. You know, something I used to, when I was writing more of those kinds of stories, one of the tricks I always used was to have a question that just caught the subject off guard, that mm. when they would get into a groove and they would start just sort of answering the questions and, and you felt like you were getting sort of something that was 
was something they've said before. And it, it just sort of, a, if you can sort of startle them out of that and ask a question that's either out of left field, that, that is not the normal, you know, line of questioning or something that they really have to stop and go, hmm, let me think about that. It can sometimes shake the interview to, and get to another level where you're getting a little more depth and you're getting a little more honesty um, it just sort of changes the conversation from being an interview into being an actual conversation. And sometimes you can get more out of people that way. What, when, but, when, when did you stop cheating on your wife, Senator? Something yeah, like that? Exactly. Yeah, that kind of thing. <laughs> just something out of left field that, and usually it's something that, that comes up in the conversation, you know, that, and sometimes it's something that uh, might be a little uh, I, I don't want to say insensitive, but but sometimes it's something that's a little bit provocative. Risky. Um, and and in most cases, I've found that that people take that as part of the process and they're OK with that. You know, they will help with that. Um, so I don't want to put you guys on the spot, but tell me what your favorite feature story. What's the one you think back to? And I know you guys have done. And I, and I mean, all four of you, um, we've, we've lost uh, Annette and um, Steve from the conversation, but the four of you who are remaining, what, what's the story you remember doing that you're, that you're, if I just sort of boom, tell me, tell me a feature story that you remember. I could tell you that Michelle uh, did a nice piece on um, the perfect storm and one of the survivors. I remember that. And I remember Michelle's nodding, but she also. I mean, that's not, that's interesting that that's what you said. That's not the first one. That you sort of already talked about that 9-11 piece too, which I think was just. I think that will stay with me forever, period. And, and that was, you know, 20 years later, you can really get the full story in a way that we really couldn't get it at the time. And it, it was fresh in everybody, you know, in all of the players' minds. Um, I thought that was stunning. Um, Kayla? I feel like I have amnesia when it comes to this. It's so bad. Like there's, I just, well, there's so many, right? I just, well, there's lots of things that I've written about, written, but, and then it just, when I look back, I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that story. It just doesn't like come to my mind immediately. I should have prepared and like looked. Um, one that comes to mind was when I wrote about, and this was because there was a real personal connection to to from for me to the story and for everyone here was when I wrote about our fabulous co-worker Carrie Cunningham and her husband who uh -huh. had um, glioblastoma and unfortunately died and we I wrote a store notes uh, what was it something gifts in the wreckage that was what it was called and it was really I remember going to her home and um you know sitting with her as she had her dining room table covered in all the different kind of medication she was giving him and like got an inside look at what it was how she what it was to care for somebody who was ill like that that you loved and because i have known her for so long and she's not just a coworker but a friend i mean you want to talk about crying when you're working on a story like yeah that 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 happened and you know sharing her story felt like an even bigger responsibility because she's a coworker and someone I cared about and just like you know I remember working on that story and it was it was 
it was a lot getting that story together, a lot of drafts, a lot of work, but I remember feeling good about it afterwards because it meant so much to her. I think it meant a lot to people who had gone through or were going through a similar experience like that. And I just, it just stands out in my mind because it was so emotional and it was with somebody that we all know and, and love so much. So that one stands out for sure. Yeah. And then in build, oh, oh, go ahead, Michelle. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I had a similar experience um, in 2015 when I did a story on B. Smith and Dan Gasly. Um, and I went to their home um, in Sag Harbor and spent about three and a half, four hours there. And our photo editor, Dana Shaw, she came too, and she, she was there for about an hour um, taking photos. And at that time, um, B had just gone public um, that she had early onset Alzheimer's. And so to be there, and I had met her in 2010. So to experience that decline peripherally and then to be in it with them only for four hours um, was, was very powerful. So that is a story that will always stick with me. Brendan and Bill, how about you guys? Do you remember a story from your past that with Pipe, pipe people, and this goes back a long time, 20, 20 some years maybe. And we had gotten a tip that there were people, um, homeless people living in the woods behind the railroad tracks in Hampton Bays. And I was not um, feeling very positive that it was accurate, but I, I went um, roaming around back there and ran into a kid actually that was um, kind of skateboarding and said, you, have, you know, know anything about it? And he brought me to to this area where there were these um, huge six foot wide drainage pipes laid sideways in this area. And there were, there were obviously people living in there. Um, it was a, a little bit of an encampment. They had, um, you know, clothes and blankets and, and stuff. Um, I, one, one picture hanging of a, um, of um, it was a religious, a religious photo. And, ran into a couple guys and they were um, angry at first um, that I was invading their, their space, but um, kind of talked them down. I, I think I, uh, I don't know if I should say this, I bribed them with cigarettes and, um, and got talking. And, and here were a couple guys that were um, admittedly and obviously alcoholic, um, which accounted for a lot of, of their situation. And, Given my own history with um, with drugs and alcohol, there was a, you know a personal connection um, with them, and um, they didn't want to be homeless. Um, but living in the Hamptons um, when you're in that situation would had gotten too difficult for them, and um, and I was very happy that you know it wasn't it, it turned from from a perspective little news story about you know people living you know, homeless people living somewhere to, you know, to, I think a story about uh, one guy, especially his, his struggles with, with alcohol and, and his desire to, to get away from them. So it was personal for me. And I think, so, so that's why I remember it. And I think I probably, if I went back and read the story, I'd be a little critical of, of parts of it, but, um, um, but, but I, I remember that. And, and then I also, there's one, it's not a, not a story or a feature story, but it, 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 whenever anybody asked me, it, it, it always sticks in my mind. And it was, I think, the greatest lead 
that I ever uh, wrote to for a story that was um, so the the commercial fishermen in, in Hampton Bays there, there was a, a run on on squid so they were all out um, um, fishing for for squid every day and they would bring it back and there was a a, a frozen communal uh, trailer like a mobile home and, and they would put all the squid in the trailer the problem was the refrigeration in the trailer um, was a little inadequate so you had fish juice leaking out out of the trailer and there was the restaurant next door and I think my lead was something along the lines of it was it was a quick lead it was um, diners at doctors dockers are used to getting their calamari on a plate and, and that's how it started and then obviously went into you know the problems with, with all that and I just I thought I was very witty um, at the time for coming up with with that lead you are very um, witty, so. you know, that's an endorphin rush too when you come up with a really witty lead well, and it's like really short yeah and, and then you just feel like a real like master of and, and you know language. what the story wrote itself right after that because it was it, you came up with i i never wrote leads first i would always you know write the story and then try to come up with the lead with, with news stories I, I think you can't do that with a feature but um you know with with that story it, it just it just wrote itself Oh, it's so funny to hear you say that because i'm no this is a podcast but i did like the thing like the hands on the side of the head and like like the head exploding emoji when you said that because I'm like about about writing the I often last. feel like paralyzed until the lead comes and then once the lead comes it's just like pulling the drain out of the bathtub or something I'm like now the story I, it depends on depends on the kind of story you're writing I think if you're writing you know a, a town board news story then it's that you don't need the lead I, I you're right I have done that with news stories where I've been like all right let me just like write this like facts paragraph here and then I can yeah. get something interesting to lead into it. You're right. But with feature stories, whew. everybody's a little different. It's funny. It also occurred to me to use uh, as my example, a story that I did on homelessness. And it was about one individual who would sleep on beaches or, he, you know, maybe he got to sleep in people's on people's couches, uh, but you know, all summer long, and as long as it wasn't raining, he would just sleep out on the beach where you couldn't see him in the dunes or something. And he had been doing this for years, and he didn't mm. seem to have uh, drug or alcohol problems, uh, at least none that he would discuss. But it just kind of seemed to be that that commitment of paying your rent every month on time always having to live in the same place, being under a contract, just never really clicked with him. So he would have jobs, people would give him work, people would give him food, but just for years and years, he could never nail down a place to live. And because he lived on the South Fork of Long Island, uh, despite the fact that he worked, he probably would never really be able to afford anything stable anyway. He started out living, you know, in a group home with uh, not a group home, like a facility, but he lived in a home with eight other men or so. And then at one point they, they all got kicked out. And after they moved out, he just never found another place to live and telling his story and shining a, a light on the fact that homelessness exists in one of the most affluent areas of the world uh, it just really worked as a story and it resonated with a lot of people. Absolutely. I, well, I'm an, I'm an evangelist for community journalism, as you know, and I believe this is what we do best. And I think it's why we're very important. And I'm just really, you know, 
I'm just really lucky that we have the staff we have and so many terrific writers who can come at so many stories. And there are so many stories in our community uh, and that we can tell them as well as we do. So congratulations to Annette and to Steve and Michelle and Kaylin and, and Brendan and Bill um, who all do everything they do so well, you know, just thank you for all that. Um, I thought it was time to shine the spotlight on you guys a little bit um, because, hey, you deserve it. You're good at what you do. And, and not everybody you know, can do it. I can tell you, it's, it's not, right. this is not an easy job to do well. And uh, you guys all do it very well. So hats off to you. A shout out to the editors as well, because, you know, Seriously. like when they show the stars without makeup and the paparazzi take their photo and they don't expect it. And you're like, whoa, that's what JLo looks like without makeup. <laughs> and then you see her on the cover of a magazine. That's what you guys do for us. Nah, so. nah. <laughs> Oh, hardly. Oh, hard, hardly. Hardly. Take the compliment. <laughs> yeah. Editors are people too. <laughs> 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and SagHarborExpress.com. Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts. 